Hi, this is Paul. Welcome to the podcast, Things I Didn't Learn in School, where my guests describe the big life lessons they've learned outside the classroom. This is part two of my conversation with Gao Shi Ching, who's had such a remarkable life. In the second part of this conversation, we focus on rule of law in China and the United States. And as with the first section, he makes a number of references that not all listeners will be familiar with, so I will just provide a bit more context here. Qin Shi Huang was the first emperor of China. He reigned from 259 to 210 BC and established the first legal code. In Europe, Gao Xichen references a whole history of legal tradition that dates to the Justinian Code, which is 529 to 534, sort of the foundation of the Western legal code. The Norman Conquest and Norman Customary Law in the 1200s, the Magna Carta in 1215, which put the first limits of the sovereign, the Glorious Revolution of 1688, which first established Parliament as having absolute ruling power, and he also notes the Japan Meiji Restoration from 1890 to 1947, which had a mixed constitutional and absolute monarch approach. And then Gaoshi Chen references two cycles, the Kondratiev cycle by Soviet economist Nikolai Kondratiev, author of Major Economic Cycles in 1925. And these cycles had an expansion, stagnation, and regression phrase. And he also talks about the 60-year calendar on Asian history, the sexagenary cycle, which dates back to the oracle bones in 3rd century China. So those points will help you put some context around the richness of his comments. You're uh, making these railroad tracks for food and everything, and then all of a sudden you're in a school in Beijing. It must have been a complete shock. That chance was uh, really very few and far in between. During those, um, I think there were like uh, five, six years of the the time when, when colleges were allowed to open without exams, there were altogether about 3 million people got in, in all those years. You know, today, every year, we had over 8 to 9 million kids going to colleges. But those days, it was a very rare chance for kids. And they said only 3% of, of high school graduates, if they were hardly in high school, but, you know, just that age group could go to college. And uh, we were regarded as privileged. And I, I treasure that a lot more than most of my classmates. You know, they we're all in a similar situation, but many of those were from the military and many from the farms. And I treasure more because I just thought, you know, to me, I came up from a faraway place from Beijing and uh, I was really working on the very bottom of the society as a coolie working the hardest because, you know, those from the military one third of my classmates were from the military, and those were regarded as really already privileged because in those days, anyone who get into the military were regarded as having very good class standing and uh, very good luck, very good connections. Okay, so then that, that Mao dies. Mao dies in 76, and then the Deng Xiaoping's opening is in 78. When did the idea dawn on you? Well, I ought to go to the United States and get a law degree. I graduated from college in 1978, early 1978, and uh, still got assigned a job because those days you're not allowed to freely choose your your job. So I got assigned a job to go back to Xi'an to a military computer institute. 
And, and uh, that institute was regarded as, uh, they say, well, we need someone who can, uh, who can speak English. Because they had a lot of uh, materials in English they needed me to translate. And then, then I said, well, my, because the institute was all computer and all these things. Uh, my major wasn't in that. I said, well, you know, t- t- your, your major is in English, right? You should just do that. But that was the year when the government allowed, uh, postgraduate schools to open. And that, and the government attached great importance to that and say, okay, we, re- we need uh, people to have further education. And that year, the, the government uh, was ready to take only 30,000 kids, 30,000 students throughout the country into graduate school. So I immediately applied for that. And I took the exam and I scored number one in the country and I got into, into the school. Wait a minute. Out of 30,000 students that took the exam, you were number one? Well, the 30,000 were divided up into different uh, categories, majors. My major at that time into the school where there were 6,000 people competing for this one place. With those 6,000 people, I got number one into it. Because different, because in graduate school, the, the exam was not uniform. So in my specialized field, I was the number one. Uh, so I, I got into the school. Cause otherwise, had I been, uh, you know, not number one, I couldn't even get into it because the school really didn't like me. Uh, that was a long story, but I wouldn't tell. But uh, I got criticized during the school days because of my, what they consider bourgeois liberal uh, way of thinking. So I got criticized several times. I, I thought they could never take me. But since I got number one, that was reported and uh, people couldn't uh, really hide my scores, uh, you know, put it just uh, under the uh, carpet. So I got in. Well, it shows that, that at least that part of the system was not corrupt. In other words, it was totally based on merit. My choice of the school was foreign trade and my specialty was macroeconomics, which at the time was called critique of the Bora economic theory. Yeah. I like uh, theory. So I took that, I got in, and but two months after I got into the school, the school authority came and said, look, our authorities, which my university was controlled by the, well, today you call it the Ministry of Commerce, but that time was Ministry of Foreign Trade. The ministry said, now we need uh, uh, a new uh, specialty called the law. That was in 1978, late 78. They say the school would have to start a new system, start a new department called the law department. So they got my, uh, who later became my tutor, Mr. Shen, Professor Shen, who was a, a lawyer and law professor before the revolution, but then later was banished to the school to teach French language for, for more than 10 years. Finally, they dug him out and took him back and said, okay, now you teach law. He said, well, I don't expect anyone. He got his uh, doctor of state from France and uh, very, very knowledgeable and vol- voluminous uh, writer for Western, for Roman law, common law, and uh, European continental law systems, all that. So he said, well, um, they wanted him to take uh, one or two students in law. And asked him to choose from the 16 kids who were lucky enough to get into graduate school in that school. But he said, okay, I don't expect anyone to have any previous knowledge about law 
or anything, but I would like to have someone whose English is good enough so he could read. Because uh, he said, well, we have absolutely no materials in Chinese in these things. So they, they came to me, and then at first I refused. Uh, I said, is that an order from the party, or is that a uh, suggestion? And this is the, the head of our school, this is the party secretary. He said, well, of course, we would like to have you agree. I said, okay, now I don't agree. <laughs> he said, well, you know, this is important. I said, well, um, I don't think it's important. You know, I don't think the law is important because my father was in, thrown in jail for five years without any trial, got out without any explanation. Where's the law? He said, oh, those days were bygones. Now it's a new, new time. Our party now really stresses the law. I said, well, I, I don't believe it. Maybe, uh, you, you should find someone else. So at first he went, you know, he, he tried to persuade me for two weeks. Every day he, he came to talk to me. I just said no. So finally he persuaded you know, the number two person, a, a lady to go. And then I got interested. So when the, the lady started studying under, um, Professor Shen for uh, about a month, uh, every time after her class, I would ask her, what you, do you guys learn? She told me. And then by the time I already finished all the books in uh, macroeconomics, 30 books altogether. So I went to sit into the, her class to listen to the you know, professor talking about law. And I thought it was interesting. And then, lo and behold, the ministry said, no, one student's not enough. We need a, another one. So they came to persuade me again. This time, it didn't spend too much time. I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go. Because um, uh, it sounds interesting. That's how I got into law. And then, you know, after three years, we studied, we, I thought we studied all these laws. And because we had a, a professor, David Hayden, who was a lawyer in California, who taught us. And we had Hansen Huang, who was a lawyer in New York. And those people taught us all these, uh, U.S. related laws, uh, and all these things. I thought it was very interesting. But then three years after, you know, I got assigned a job back in the school. They say, well, you should be a professor. I said, okay, fine, professor. But then that was, you know, 1981, when law was already a very much a important subject. Then everyone wanted me to go. The school, in order to stop me from going any other place, the school wanted me to be a teacher. And all these other places, the Justice Department, the, the Foreign Trade Ministry, the Legal Department of the People's Congress, and the Supreme Court of China, they all wanted me to go. So the school said, okay, you, you, you go abroad. You go to the United States. They sent me to this law firm in California in 1982 to be what they call foreign legal consultant for a year as an exchange uh, with their lawyers being uh, a, a professor in my school. It was during that time I found when I worked for that firm in San Francisco, I worked in San Francisco Washington, D.C., and the L.A. offices of that firm for a whole year. During that time, I found my knowledge of American law was utterly inadequate. And I thought I learned a lot, you know, because in China, the law was so scanty. We only have had a few pieces of law. So you could finish reading them in two days, right? But once I got to the U.S., I said, oh, my God, you know, any smallest thing you could dig for a month for all the cases. So finally, I decided during that time, I said, okay, I, I, I probably should go to school again in the U.S. I asked my school back in China. They said, well, no, we, 
we don't have the money for you to go to school. Yes, schools are expensive. I said, oh, what if I got a scholarship? I said, well, you can try. You've got a scholarship, you can go. So I tried it, and I got a full scholarship from Duke, and I got the promise of scholarship from Columbia. And then I finally decided to go to Duke and uh, for you know, various reasons, which is another long story. But uh, that's how I ended up in Duke. So can you briefly describe you know, when you touched out in the United States after hunting for food on the railroad tracks and then getting into the and then all of a sudden you land in the United States from China? Over the years, I always told my students that it was a that if they wanted to go to the U.S., they should be prepared for a cultural shock. Because mm. that's what I had. It's really on me, cultural shock. The most important impression on me was the time when I first got out of the San Francisco International Airport. Those lawyers in Graham uh, and James put me in a car. And I got to this highway. You know Highway 101, I think, mm. I believe. And so it's eight lanes on each side. All these cars... Eight lanes of car coming from the other side and my side. I just, I got just totally overwhelmed. I said, Oh my God, this, you know, I never saw that because when I was in school, we could see a foreign movie probably once in three months time. And those foreign movies were carefully chosen. So we were, you know, we, we really, we didn't have very much of a impression of what the United States is really like. And when I started working in, um, uh, Grandma James, which is located in downtown San Francisco in, uh, in this, uh, called Alcoa building. Next to it is the Embarcadero Center. And I bumped my head onto the, um, the shop glasses three times because the glasses were so clean. I couldn't see anything because in China, I never saw anything like that. So I just thought it was, there was nothing. I just ran right into the glass and really hit my head on it. So everything to me was just totally new, of course. But then eventually I started getting letters from all my students who went to the U.S. later. And most of them wrote back and said, what do you mean by cultural shock? You know, I'm, I'm shocked about totally the reverse way because the United States was so run down, so yes. dilapidated yes. and so inconvenient. I said, Oh my God, this, you know, times this, have changed. Yeah. So different now. So then describe the legal tradition, if you can, because China, of course, has an unbelievable history in terms of literature, commerce, government service, etc. But the legal traditions are very, very different than in the West. Today, people who study law usually talk about two major legal systems that call the you know, European continental law, you know, civil law system, and the Anglo-American common law system. But in fact, both of these laws are from one single system. It's called the Roman law system. Right. And, uh, you know, this is a sort of Eurocentric way of looking at things, because today most lawyers would consider modern laws as having the European Roman law tradition, which if you look at the Chinese laws today, yeah, sure enough, most of the modern laws, you know, civil law, contract, corporation, securities, even the criminal law, most of these concepts and structures were borrowed from Europe. However, China has a very long legal history dating back from Qin Dynasty, which is uh, very different from Europe, uh, which I would call 
It's not accurate, but briefly you can call it a sort of a penal law, penal code system. It's a criminal law system, which when Qin Shi Huang unified China, came out with so-called very sophisticated, complicated code with tens of thousands of articles, basically regulating relationships in a society in a vertical manner, which means that everything was was given either a permission or a something forbidden. It's not like most of the European laws, which you know, dates back to the Roman law time. If you look at the Justinian Code, which was codified in around 536 AD, was mostly civil law, uh, civil code. So it's regulating bodies of equal status, like, you know, contracts. These are all either contracts or debts or trust. Uh, these things were all regarding people's relationship on, on equal footing. But in China, for thousands of years, the laws were not talking about equal footing because the government thinks they are higher than you. So mm. they're basically saying, you cannot do this, you can do not do that. For instance, we have a law 2,000 years ago, which says for each mu, each mu is about 660 square meters of land. For each mu of land, if you plant wheat, you are allowed to have only a certain pound of seed. If you have more than that, then you'll be punished. So this, this, this is like, you know, a, the thing for, for instance, if, uh, during the, all these years, if you have, especially in later years, like during the, uh, that's the Ming dynasty and Qing dynasty, would regulate on the color of your clothes. Your, no one is allowed to wear a certain yellow color because this is the royal color. And also the size of the card you can sit on. Your card would have to be within, say, two feet. If it's longer than two feet, then, then you are violating the law because only people of higher standing can sit on a cart wider than that. And also your, on your house, the tiles of your house would have to be a certain color. If it's a different color, then you'll be punished. So it's all these laws, any marriage, your family relationships, these things, these are all our laws. So for a thousand years, our laws were mostly criminal uh, laws. And for a thousand years, Western laws were mostly uh, civil laws. It's very interesting because even in the West, I say, well, in the West, you have wars, you have murders, you have all these things for a thousand years. How come there was no penal code? Only the Western, in Europe, only had their first penal code less than 200 years ago, only a little more than 100 years ago. And similarly in China, when we started our civil code about a hundred years ago, when the last Qing dynasty emperor started to having reform. So this is a very different mindset. When I first started dealing with Americans and they said, Oh, China never had a legal tradition. I said, No, no, we did have a legal tradition, but we have a different legal tradition. We did have laws, but our law, the basic concept is that which is not allowed. Is prohibited. That's our law for a thousand years. And in the West, for, you know, at least for more than a thousand years, it says that which is not prohibited is allowed. That's what today we call negative list. And China finally, you know, uh, about um, eight years ago, you know, Chinese Communist Party Congress, we finally passed all these laws, which says we start embracing this concept of negative list. 
So basically, your government would say, okay, this is a list of things you cannot do. Other than that, you can't do anything else. At that time, you know, very few people paid attention to that. I said, well, my God, this is a life-changing announcement for China. Because for thousands of years, we were thinking the other way around. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you tired of feeling lost in the world of trading and investing? Get informed and inspired with the Talking Trading Podcast. I'm Louise Bedford, and I'll help you navigate the markets like a pro. Tune in each week and subscribe now at talkingtrading.com.au or on your favourite podcast app. Or check out the link in the show notes. Talking Trading, this is how traders excel. So the prospects for rule of law being established in China, given those very different traditions and obviously a very different form of government, what's your assessment of how that process is going and where it's going? First of all, China is a is a very, you know, it's a very old civilization, very long-term tradition of things. So it's not easy to change people's mindset. Mm. And, you know, this is the, the people keep saying, oh, China is the only continued civilization for a thousand years and all that, which is debatable because many people don't agree with that. However, one thing amazing to me is that every time when I pick up some old book, so I, you know, I, I have a few old books. When you, know, when you have an old book, which had the, the language, you know, I was, when I read it, you know, it was William, which is a, you know, Asian Chinese. I'm amazed because I was always thinking, oh my God, you know, this book was read 2,000 years ago by someone right. who were reading exactly the same words, right? right? And he could understand it. I can understand it now. Of course, it's, what's difficult today, you have to study it. It's more like the, like the Westerners reading Chaucer. And, it, you know, it's English, but it's, it's old English. In Chinese, it's, it's the same thing. So t- today, when you think about all these new development, all these things, you will say, well, they're... There are all these things stuck in the back of your mind. Concepts, principles, morals that will remain. These things are not easy to change, I would argue. But on the other hand, if you look at other parts of China, the reason why we can progress so much and the reason why within a short 40 years time, China has progressed so much economically and everything else. And also the fact that if you look at the clothes I'm wearing, it's, this is all Western style, I would say, right? Yeah. Everything we, we look at, most of the things, the cars, computers, and most of the, the, the modern uh, convenience, all these uh, uh, daily necessities, mostly were you know, Western style. And of course, you know, in my family, we have a few pieces of furniture, which is old style, but even that was only the Ming style, right? That's only a few hundred years ago. So we can't go all the way back to the Qin Dynasty because I don't like the discomfort of, of sitting on the floor. That was only thing in Qin Dynasty. There were no chairs in those days, right? So people accept these things. And if you look at, I usually remind my Chinese friends who argue that our culture is, uh, you know, so much more advanced. I said, no, no, no. Just look at the language you're using every day. The very sentence you just said. Half of those words were not our only words. Those were Japanese inventions. Okay. Many Chinese people said, 
all the Japanese that you know use Chinese language. I said, no, they used Chinese language early on. Then they, they modernized those ever since the Meiji Revolution. They translated all these Western ideas. And today, most of the words we use every day, especially in, in professional works, in law, in economics, in trade, investment, most of the Chinese terms were Japanese translations. And I said, if you, you get rid of all Japanese words, like the economy, politics, everything almost, you take away of that, you can't even talk. You can't really say, oh, I'm hungry, I'm going to eat, right? You can't even, you know, you can't even do anything else. So I would say the Chinese culture, at the same time as a long tradition culture, is also a very adaptive culture. And we learn from the West, we learn from the Japanese, we learn from other people, from more advanced things. So when we look at the legal system today, most of the laws in China today not only take the form of, uh, you know, Western civil code or, or common law tradition, but also many, most of the concepts, like the thing, negative list I was talking about, you know, like many of the contractual terms, these are all Western ideas. For 2000 years, our courts, I wouldn't say courts, our government, because the courts and the government, we never had a separation of the judiciary and the administration. And when the administrator adjudicated on personal disputes over a contract, you know what? From Han Dynasty, you know, 2000 years ago, up until Qing, the officials answer was always that they said, the officials will not interfere with personal contracts. Whatever you, you write in your contract, just do it. That's why we have, you know, a friend of mine collected over 80,000 old contracts from Song, Yuan, Ming, Qing dynasties. And you read those contracts, they sell everything, including people, you know, servants. And there was no slavery, supposedly, but their uh, servants, their sons, daughters, and livestock, land, houses, all these contracts were written in these things, and the, the officials would not interfere with them. Unless you claim for fraud, for coercion, that's the only thing they would, that's because that's, you know, part of the criminal code. If that's not the case, the, the government never worry about it. But today, you look at it, we have all these very sophisticated intricacies of all the contract law from the West. These are all Western. When you ask me where would China go on this thing called the rule of law, I would say, I'm very confident that China, within given enough time, we're moving towards a much more rule of law society, a much more, you know, rule-based society than otherwise, because rule of man, in the long run, in modern society, is probably not going to be favored by people, and we know it. Over a hundred years ago, our forefathers overturned the, the dynasties and overturned the, you know, the, the imperial system because we don't believe in, in those uh, uh, systems. So they, they advocated on either capitalism or later socialism, communism. These are all based on what today we understand as democracy. Today, we in our country, even though there Westerners argue that all oh, China is not a democracy, well, we our people say we have our... We have our own way of, uh, you know, seeing democracy. You know, either way you call it, still, we're not an emperor system. We do not have a, a dictator on top who would be uh, go down by bloodlines. 
and if you will be elected, okay, either not you like the way we elect our leaders, it's still called the election. It's still, you know, our way we call a socialist democracy. What's your assessment of the durability or fragility of rule of law in the United States? There's a number of some thoughtful people I've spoken to that describe the stresses on the U.S. Constitution now, because to change the Constitution, you really need approval of the U.S. Senate. The U.S. Senate is mostly represented, disproportionately represented by agricultural areas. And so there's a real split between the urban areas and the agricultural ones. In some degree, the split is almost as intense as that which was in the 19th century, which is the last time that you made major changes to the U.S. Constitution. I would use uh, the term strong rather than fragile. Individually, if you look at you know some parts of the law, of course, there are problems here and there, and sometimes it's debatable, sometimes it's even fightable, and you, people could, presumably, could even go into war on some certain things in various places. However, the overall legal tradition is deeply rooted not only in the Constitution itself, in the U.S., not only, you know, in all the codified presidential case law systems, really it's deeply rooted in the culture, in the thinking of your people. Most of your tradition came from Europe. The United States as a multi-party or as a salad bowl, yeah, most of your, your people, your culture still went back to all the way to Roman law, to those. Yeah, and I studied, uh, you know, the Roman law system, other European legal system. And I think it's a, you know, they, you know, if you look at the, not only the, the Roman law itself, but if you just look at the changes in, say, after Norman conquest in 1066, when, you know, the Romans took, took all their uh, laws into England. And then you look at, you know, 1215, the, uh, the Magna Carta, when you had all this whole concept of a sort of a check and balance there. And then you look at, you know, 300 years ago when, when the British, uh, you know, glorious revolution. And when they had all these things, there were parts of time when some despot, some big head wanted to rule the, the whole place as his uh, own, uh, you know, under his own dictatorship. But it really never lasted for long enough. You know, mm. Hitler or Napoleon or whoever just couldn't last for long enough because you had a, such a deeply rooted the tradition of checks and balances of you know these things. Even in the in the Greek days, you know, over twenty seven hundred years ago, these uh city kingdoms were ruled by not one person, but most times by two people. So there are all these necessities of check and balances. It's it's very difficult for these people, you know, after so many years seeing all the inadequacies now finally decide, oh we need a we need a dictator or we need one party or one person to rule it forever. That's not going to happen. I absolutely do not believe that that's going to happen. So just like what Winston Churchill said, you know, democracy is a bad system. However, we haven't found a better one yet. Right. Yeah, that's what I would view it as. Yeah, democracy Um, has all its inadequacies, has all its problems. The U.S. democracy as it is today is probably going to change somewhat, you know, over the next few decades. You know, especially given the, you know, the problem with this, this election and, uh, you know, last time when the election between Bush Jr. and Al Gore and these things, you may change your electoral system 
But in the end of the day, there's not going to be a total change of the system. In my time going abroad, spending time in Russia and spending time in China, there's been a huge swing already in my own lifetime in relations from enemies to friends to enemies. And now there's a real, I would describe it as vilification, I think is probably the right word, of China in America now. Thoughts on this, the source of it, the prospects going forward? On the one hand, I I feel quite sad that, uh, you know, um, after so many years of uh, what you would call honeymoon period or honey decades, and then finally where we seem to be looking at each other with such a suspicious eyes and uh, many people thinking, oh, you know, the other side as not only a competitor, but really as an enemy, I think it's sad. I'm a what we would call internationalist. Basically, I regard people of any race, any culture, any religion, any ideology as our friends or as uh, you know fellow humans. And we together we face a lot more challenges outside of the human race, outside of Earth, rather than all the little things you know among ourselves. But at the same time, you know, as a person for legal training and as a, as a person in, in you know, economics and trade, I understand the you know, way people need to compete. I understand the way people think differently. But uh, I sort of believe in this sort of a long wave theory, you know, by Kondratiev, the 60-year cycles. And actually, in Chinese culture, we have, you know, our centuries, you know, your centuries are 100 years. Our centuries are 60 years. You know, mm-hmm. every 60 years, it's one century in Chinese. That dated back from 3,000 years ago. And then we have all these things, believe it. We call it Yellow River, which means 30 years of a west of a river, 30 years of east of the river. Because, you know, our, because our things always change. Every 60 years, there's a whole full circle. And I believe there's going to be another full circle. And just look at uh, things that happened 60 years ago. Which was the Cultural Revolution. And that time was, was such a, also a very populist and sort of a rebellious period in the West. You know, the whole, uh, hippies movement, Red Brigade, and, uh, you know, all the rebels in Europe and in, in Japan, in Germany, and you know, all these people believing in communism and all those things. And in China, people believing in Cultural Revolution. And then, then look at all the pictures we took, you know, during the 80s, then people started having their, their dark suits and started, you know, going to investment banks out there anymore. But now, once again, we're going into this new period. Uh, this too will pass, as we mm. say in the Bible. And I, I don't believe it's going to be like this forever. Well, as some people say, going down to the abyss of history and totally destroy everyone. I don't believe so. And the way humans as a whole, I still have hope and I'm an optimist. I think within probably another, you know, things may get worse before it gets better. That's for sure. Right now, just look at all the polarized things. The polarization is not only happening in the U.S. It's everywhere, right? And it's in China too. You know, even though we, because our system, you can't really see it as readily as in the U.S. However, you know, I have all my, I have so many friends. I have friends all over, all in different walks of life. I talk to them all the time. And most people refuse to talk to other people with different ideas. And I love that. So I, I just go talk to everyone. And I can see, you know, this is very polarized. This is so different from the Cultural Revolution days. Because in, during the Cultural Revolution, 
people all sort of believe, everyone, 99% of the people believe that. They believe in Chairman Mao. They believe in the Cultural Revolution, even though many people were afraid. Today, people just openly express their ideas. Say, well, I, don't, I think the Cultural Revolution should come back. Now, I talk to my nanny from time to time. You know, the, she, she no longer comes to us every day, but she would come like once every three weeks. But I always talk to her. She said, well, I don't see anything wrong with the Cultural Revolution. I think those bad bureaucrats should be smashed down. You know, so, so that's, that's the case. I think it's, it's great that people can express their views. So eventually, I believe this chaos would end. People will find new ways to carry our lives and things will get better. Okay, that's my answer. I would like to see how you view the Chinese politics and how you think China would go, especially, you know, in terms of uh, our relationship with the West, United States in particular. I agree with you that in the short term, it seems to me that there are ingredients for conflict, unfortunately. And I think it has to do with a little bit this self-reinforcing internal dynamics in each country and the relative strength, I would say, of the internationalists or the globalists in each country, which was there was a time that it was really cool to speak foreign languages and travel all these places and things like that. And now it's less so. You know, I was in a briefing last week and hearing how a U.S. congressional representative was describing what was going on in China. And it just seemed to be poorly informed. And he's a pretty liberal representative of Congress and it was poorly informed. So I think that there is a shift underway in China that you're more familiar with than I am that is some way similar to the shift that I saw in Russia that became more self-reinforcing and, and a little bit more nationalistic. And there is this feeling of loss that's relatively widespread in the United States that I think is based on a shift in wealth in the world. And it creates an insecurity. If you look at, for instance, the feeling of insecurity that was in the South of the United States after the Civil War, that lingered for a long period of time. And I think there's a little bit of a feeling of insecurity in the United States as it adjusts to different conditions. And that feeds the, the politics here. So like you, I'm a globalist and I see very, very thoughtful people on each side. And so I'm optimistic long run because I think the world's gotten to be a smaller place. But in the short term, I do see these self-reinforcing dynamics in both countries that are going a little bit against each other. <laughs>